I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Though many drug developers today are applying artificial intelligence and machine learning to accelerate and improve drug discovery, the results they produce, in part, may be limited by the quality of the data they're able to use. Nobias Therapeutics is not only using public and private data, but it boasts unique and proprietary access to one of the world's largest and most diverse pediatric genomic data sets to drive insights into human biology. The company's lead experimental therapy is a treatment for the rare condition 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome, which is associated with a range of neuropsychiatric conditions. We spoke to Neil Anala, CEO of Nobias, about how AI is transforming drug discovery. The data Nobias is able to use to fuel its drug discovery and the company's experimental therapy for the neuropsychiatric conditions associated with 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. Neil, thanks for joining us. Hi, Danny. Thanks for uh, having me. We're going to talk about AI, no bias therapeutics, and its efforts to develop a therapy to treat the neuropsychiatric symptoms associated with 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome, rare genetic disease that can include ADHD, autism, and schizophrenia as its symptoms. Before we talk about your experimental therapy, I wanted to begin with your use of AI and your sense of how this is reshaping the drug development process. AI seems to be becoming ubiquitous in in drug discovery. Where do you think we are in its evolution? Yeah, thanks, Danny. So before I came to Nobias, I worked at Alphabet for 10 years in a bunch of areas where AI is critical to the future of the company. And this includes Google Ads and Cloud, but also the healthcare group Verily and Waymo, which we all know wouldn't exist without the use of advanced modern AI methods. I saw AI techniques integrated and embedded into all kinds of things you can't even imagine without deep immersion in a specific problem space. And if we consider the drug development problem space, I think we're still in the very earliest days of the impact of modern AI methods on drug discovery. To get a sense of scale, you can compare the adoption curve of AI to that of uh, networking and the internet. AlohaNet was created in 1971 to connect the University of Hawaii computing facilities. And now, 50 years later, we're still exploring the impact of Ethernet, TCPIP, and the internet on our society. I think AI will reshape every part of drug development. And right now, there is a lot of focus on the discovery phase but it's going to get integrated into medicinal chemistry, trial design, even things like patient monitoring and assessment. Uh, Nobias Therapeutics is specifically working on accelerating that adoption curve, in particular using modern machine learning and AI techniques to, number one, rapidly get to a better understanding of the most effective biological targets, and number two, to get a better handle on the likely efficacy that drugs will have at the end of that development pipeline. When you think about the impacts of AI on drug discovery and drug development, do you see this as just another tool to make things better, faster, cheaper? Or is there something transformational about AI? Can it 
enable the discovery of drugs that would not otherwise be possible. Yeah, of course, better, faster, cheaper will always be a goal. But the real promise of AI is what it can do for us that will completely change how we think of what's possible. I like to think of it almost like Maxwell's demon, which is a concept from physics. Imagine your smartest friend shrunk down and injected into the deepest crevices of every question you want to answer. I mean, even better, imagine a thousand or a million of them, and they don't get tired and they work 24-7. Okay, you thought modulating protein target X will help with this disease, but did you consider what happens with vesicular trafficking or with post-translational protein modifications? Can we dive more deeply into transcription enhancers? What happens with tissue-specific expression? And all that's just on the target side. Those are the kinds of questions we would expect an AI to really start to help with and, and transform how we answer these questions. Another huge advantage is that AI lets us ask these questions where we don't really know the answer right now, and we don't know necessarily how to get to it. If you have enough data, it can infer things that you would only get if you sat in a basement bleary-eyed staring at data for 100 years. For example, building up hypotheses about protein structure based on looking at thousands of example structures as was done with AlphaFold. Nobias has built a suite of AI tools. What's the range of things you're doing with it? And how are you using the technology? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, from the beginning, we didn't really set out to take just a single technique and build a company around it. Instead, we wanted to take a step back and, and broadly ask that question of where is AI going and how can we use it to make drug discovery more efficient? And the answer we came up with is, let's build a suite of AI tools and a way to put them together and take them apart in a flexible way to ask biological questions and generate biological insights. In fact, let's atomize those tools to a very granular level and develop a facility that lets us create tools out of sub-tools and recombine them in sophisticated ways. Some of your listeners may be familiar with 3D modeling tools or non-linear video editors that are node-based. These let you take small bits of functionality and recombine them in different ways. We've basically done the same thing, but with AI tools that ask and answer different questions. For example, we built a tool, um, we call it the Symptom Expander, that looks at a host of related symptoms and develops hypotheses about what genes may connect them all together. Another example is a tool that, given a specific known disease, extrapolates from known drug treatments key proteins that are involved in that disease. And we have dozens of other tools like this that we've developed. We've even built molecular modeling tools that use sophisticated mathematical methods together with neural networks to rapidly tell us binding affinities between proteins and small molecules. So we've really tried to look at the end-to-end -end for the discovery process and figure out where can we inject AI and ML to make that process better and help us answer difficult and more complex, complex questions. My sense is that how good a, an answer you get from all of this is somewhat dependent on the data that's being used. What's the data sources you're using what to, to drive drug discovery and what's the range of inputs and, and what's the output? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. Uh, data is of course incredibly important for anything you wanna do in the AI space. It really determines um, how good your tools are. And as we know, most of the modern advances in large language models, chat GPT and so on, really come from uh, answering questions, basically providing huge amounts of data. Um, 
In our case, we have unique access to a data set that was assembled by a large hospital partner of ours in Philadelphia. It's the largest pediatric genomic database in the world with genomic data from more than 130,000 patients, including electronic health records, lab data, imaging data, and pathology data, and 50,000 genomes from parents and siblings. Uh, our platform has also ingested nearly 30 other curated private and public data sets, and these form a complex and dense interconnected web of information. On top of that collection of databases, we built what's called a graph convolutional network, which can find connections you might not otherwise expect based on closeness in a type of conceptual space called a, a latent space. We also have an ability to ring fence data so that we can incorporate partner data for work with uh, that partner only. But in terms of uh, outputs, we actually don't see our AI tools as spitting out an, an answer, so to speak. They actually enable a rapid iterative hypothesis generation approach that we feel is best done with human experts in the mix uh, with the AI system. So it's, it's kind of a, a design, test, build cycle? Yeah, in uh, software development, people may have heard of what's called a, a, a REPL, which stands for read, eval, print loop. Um, we, for us, it enables that kind of question. And we all come, a lot of us come from the computer science area. And so being able to rapidly iterate like that really makes the difference between being productive and being very slow. Sometimes, you know, in that, in a software development life cycle, you can do that iterative process multiple times in a minute, you know, and the difference between doing that and having a very complex process where you got to kind of think about a question and then launch an experiment and eventually get an answer and maybe pipeline all those in parallel. It's just, it's very complicated and very different from the approach we're trying to enable for the drug development process. And, and is the AI system able to learn from each of those iterations? Yeah, that is a really interesting question. So not to get into too much, you know, data from my past history, but, you know, Google gets a lot of information when you type things into a search box, right? And if you type something, you look something up, you click on something else, and then it you type in something more, that is a sort of a back and forth with the system. And you can learn a lot from that process, whether somebody thought you had good results, bad results, whether you are honing in on a particular topic or you're expanding what you're trying to do. And uh, for us, when you, that's one of the things that we're building. We haven't quite built that part yet, but basically we can watch what happens as we interact with that system and say like, is there a part where we need to build additional tooling, where we need to be able to dive more deeply and answer these questions in different ways? So we think that's gonna expand and be more and more exciting over time. So this may, may seem like a, a strange question, but if it's an iterative process, how do you know when to stop iterating? <laughs> well, I mean, I can make up something about, you know, you look for an algorithmic approach where you reduce distance to a particular target and you measure how, how rapidly you're reducing that distance. But the reality is it's a little bit of a gut feel right now. You know, uh, we, there are some things I don't want to quite get into in a public forum, but we do have some techniques that are based kind of on theorem proving that do let us answer, are we close to knowing a lot of the stuff we need to know? And we try to deploy those as well. 
as I mentioned earlier, your lead experimental therapy is a treatment for the neuropsychiatric conditions associated with 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. Can you explain what that syndrome is? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> so 22Q11.2 or 11.2 deletion syndrome, it goes by many names, including DeGeorge syndrome, velocardiofacial syndrome, and, and others. And it's a, it's a deletion on chromosome 22 of 55 or so genes. And as you know, we have uh, a bunch of chromosomes in the human body. Uh, some of them are more, I guess they're all critical, but some are, can have sort of mutations and modifications that still allow, you know, children, adults to develop. Um, in the case of 22Q deletion syndrome, where they're missing these 54, 55 genes, uh, it alters, the deletion alters the development of the third and fourth pharyngeal pouch during embryonic development, uh, among m many other things. Uh, this leads to heart defects, pure immune, poor immune system function, a cleft palate, and, and complications related to like low levels of calcium in the blood and, and many other issues. And many of these can be corrected surgically at birth or a bit later, but around the time they reach school age, they start to experience, you know, other stresses. And in many cases, they start to manifest uh, certain neuropsychiatric symptoms like um, ADHD, anxiety, uh, autism type behaviors, and so on. And so those, um, even though the physical items I mentioned were corrected surgically, these neuropsychiatric symptoms require other approaches. Often what's used are conventional stimulants and things that are used uh, in people who have only ADHD or only autism and so on. But they may not work as effectively in these children who have this complex presentation. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the reasons we developed this drug. And in fact, that's what we've been testing in our recent clinical trials. Yeah, it's interesting to see this because yeah, unlike areas such as cancer, where we've grown very accustomed to precision medicines, psychiatry has been an area that we're only now seeing the development of precision therapies this is a, a genetic condition. Do you know if there's anything particularly unique about ADHD, schizophrenia, or autism when it's caused by 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome, rather, you know, relative to other forms of these conditions? Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting question. Um, at Nobias, we like to think that rare diseases can provide insight into more common diseases. And those common diseases may not be a singular disease, but could be a set of more rare conditions that all manifest in a similar phenotype. So 22Q is an example of that. We know that the neuropsychiatric symptomatology of these patients is one of what's called syndromic ADHD, or you know, ADHD as part of a syndrome, in this case with comorbid autism and, uh, and or anxiety. And we think that this is caused by a chromosomal deletion, and in particular, variants in the what's called MGLUR or metabotropic glutamate receptor gene family network. This signaling network plays a role in several neuropsychiatric conditions, and we think that rescuing MGLUR signaling with an MGLUR activator, like NB001, will not only help 22Q patients, but may be used in other indications with variants in that gene family network. Your experimental therapy is NB001. How was this discovered? 
So there's definitely some history to the study. MB001 is actually a drug that was originally developed by Nippon Shinyaku, a Japanese company, for vascular dementia and was brought through phase three trials by them, but shelled for lack of efficacy. Our chief scientific officer, who is a, a guy named Dr. Hauken Hauken-Arsen, uh, who has got a fascinating history, I'd love to go into that at some point, but he was looking for a drug that was known to be a sort of a modulator of these metabotropic glutamate receptor networks um, and generally uh, safe and, and usable for certain neuropsychiatric purposes. And so he found this drug and contacted the company, uh, licensed it from them, and uh, we decided to take that forward and repurpose it for, um, for, this, for this trial and this purpose. Uh, how well understood is the mechanism of action of NB001? Yeah, that's, that is, <laughs> there's a lot of consternation that has gone into figuring that out. Um, of course, the Nippon Shinyaku did a lot of trials in animals and cell lines and other things to figure out what's going on. Um, the truth is that the exact mechanism of action is something that uh, we have our engineering team working on that. And they're developing some pretty interesting insights. Um, and I think that some of these things are only discoverable with the use of tools like we've built. Uh, it's pretty amazing that uh, it's more than just an MGUR activator, but I, I won't go into much more than that. But what we can say is that NB001 is believed to be an activator of MGLUR or metabotropic glutamate receptors, uh, which are a family of these, uh, what are called GPCRs or G protein coupled receptors that kind of are involved in the modulation of synaptic transmission and neuronal excitability throughout the CNS or central nervous system. What's known about the safety and efficacy of the candidate from studies you've done to date? So we do know that the drug at, at this point is very safe uh, and safety was the primary outcome we were measuring in our recent phase two trial. We had no grade three or above adverse effects in our phase two study. And this mirrors prior clinical experience with the drug by Nippon Shinyaku and others. In terms of efficacy, we recently released our uh, public data, top line data on that from our phase two trial. We used a um, endpoint called CGII, which is clinical global impression of improvement. And that is, um, in our case, it was a scale um, one to seven, where four is a baseline. And really, you're looking for improvement. So like a three, two, or one, which indicate getting better and better on the scale. And in general, we saw improvements of between like a, a third to a half of a point, which is what we've seen as clinically significant in other similar kinds of trials. Specifically, we saw these outcomes in our full analysis set, which is the most conservative set. That's all comers who came into the trial. We saw an improvement of 0.36 compared to placebo. And then in subgroups, uh, our per protocol set, as well as in uh, groups defined by certain um, impairment on some of these scales, ADHD, autism, and anxiety, we also saw really interesting improvements comparable to those in the full analysis set. You're also developing a, a second experimental therapy. This is NB002 for vascular anomalies. This is in preclinical development. Are these genetic in nature and how serious a health threat are they for people with the condition? 
Yeah, they're definitely genetic um, and they're results of a variety of mutations, but they generally fall into two key pathways. One is through a gene called, I mean, all of these are basically, you could think of them as cellular stress and response pathways, cellular growth, and so on. A lot of connections to how cells respond to insults and growth signals and other things that happen in the body. And there, there are often a lot of connections back and forth to cancer signals. Uh, but I mentioned these two key pathways. One is called PIK3CA, and the other is called the RAS-RAF-MAP kinase pathway. Uh, and these are also called RASopathies. So uh, there are several types of vascular anomalies. However, we're focused on a set that are called, you could call them complex lymphatic anomalies. And they're considered rare, uh, in some cases congenital, uh, in other cases somatic, which means that they arose later from a random mutation in, um, in some set of cells. And children who have these complex lymphatic anomalies, they develop uh, benign cysts, benign in the sense that they're not, um, you know, malignant like in cancer, but these are called lymphatic malformations and often in their lymphatic system, although they can occur also in the arteriovenous system. Uh, these cysts can grow into the child's bones, their connective tissue and organs, damaging them and severely disabling the child. They can also cause leakage of lymphatic fluid into certain body compartments, including around the heart and lungs, make it hard for you to, to breathe or hard for your heart to beat. And unfortunately, mortality rate for some of these can be as high as 40%. So it's quite, quite serious. And um, there are no FDA approved drugs for treating these. How did Nobias come to develop NB002? Well, uh, that's an interesting story with a interesting background. So our hospital partner has is a center of excellence for treating children the world over. And so definitely there are children who come in who have some of these anomalies. Um, there was an example of a kid who came into, into the hospital who uh, they gave him the name Daniel in, in some of the public stories about him. I don't think that's his real name, but he, he was an athletic kid, uh, a soccer player and a runner. And uh, you know, he grew up being, you know, fine. But then at some point he developed this, what we call the somatic mutation. So uh, things just started growing and overgrowing around his heart and lungs and other areas. And uh, when he came into the hospital, he was basically in a wheelchair and not doing very well. And they had already tried uh, one drug that is sometimes used in these things, but that drug only works in 50% of the cases and it didn't work on him. Uh, so our chief scientific officer, Dr. Halkin Halkin Arson, um, he developed a cell-free DNA sequencing technique where he was able to extract what's called the chylus fluid from uh, the lungs of this patient. And uh, also there was another patient who was an adult who came in, had similar issues. And uh, from them discovered through whole exome sequencing that there was a gene that was stuck on. It was constantly signaling to these cells to grow. Uh, and when you're telling lymphatic system cells to grow, they can kind of make that lymphatic network a little bit looser so that fluids start to leak out. Um, this gene that was stuck on was uh, upstream of a gene called MEK, M-E-K. Uh, and so they decided to use it, a, a known class of drugs called MEK inhibitors. And MEK inhibitors are mostly oncology drugs. I'll get into that in a second. But he basically decided to try this out 
um, on zebrafish and cell lines that modeled in some ways the symptoms that they were seeing in these patients, and then discovered that um, basically it was doing an amazing job of, of fixing those problems. And in particular, it remodeled the lymphatic system in these um, zebrafish, which is something that had not been seen before. So after applying for a compassionate use exemption with the FDA, they gave this child the drug and he pretty immediately started to get better. And uh, at some point was able to get out of the wheelchair. And now it's like five years later and he's doing fine. And they've also been able to treat a few other children with similar diseases and who, who are affected in the same way. And um, they're, they're all showing, or not all, but you know, a good portion of them are doing, are showing really amazing improvements. So that's where we decided to take this same class of drugs and develop a particular molecule because the drug that they were using is considered an oncology drug. And in oncology, you have some pretty severe side effects that you wouldn't necessarily want to accept for a child who's going to be on this drug chronically for most of their lives. So we looked at a, developing something that would have the same efficacy as what they were using, but that would have a better safety profile and a better, you know, also business profile from an IP point of view and so on. So we now have that drug in hand and we're ready, readying our next regulatory steps to take this through a phase two trial. There's not a clear connection between vascular anomalies and 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. How does Nobias think about building a pipeline and what constitutes a condition you'd pursue? We ground a lot of the work we do in what data we have access to and what we can generate from our tools. So I'd mentioned before this database we have, which is an amazing, incredibly rich resource that guides a lot of what we can do. And if we can't pull something from that, we look at what are the other, you know, some of the other 30 or so databases we're connected to and what insights can we gather based on that. In a sense, I'd mentioned before that we are focused on rare diseases and how these rare diseases can act as lenses to give us insight into more broad diseases, more commonplace diseases. Well, that's sort of the same approach we take with querying the database uh, or multiple databases. We look at, is there a direction we can go where it opens up series of biological insights about something that we can turn into uh, related families of drugs? So in the case of the 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome and vascular anomalies that we have uh, initially developed drugs for, those come from querying that database using a variety of methods. And in some cases prior to when we developed our AI tool suite, but they still came from using algorithmic methods, biostatistics, biostatistical methods, and other mechanisms to really look for unusual connections that lead to these biological insights. So uh, we are guided by that information that's in the database how we can construct a series of biological insights that tell a story about what's happening biologically and how we can turn those into something that's a drug. And finally, by what our partners suggest, because you know we have a lot of capabilities that we're uh, discussing with uh, potential pharma partners 
and they have their own interests guided by all kinds of considerations, right? Like they may be into fibrosis and they may be looking specifically at uh, neurological disease and so on. And those are the kinds of things that we, we use to guide our development of our pipeline. You mentioned partnering. What's the company's partnering strategy? What would you seek in a, a partnering opportunity? So we have in the collection of our platform and data sets together, an incredibly strong capability to generate a volume of biological insights very rapidly. And what we're focused on is turning those into a series of products. In most cases, those products will ideally be, um, you know, drug programs. And uh, in some cases, they may be just IP. In other cases, they may stop at phase two and so on. But we're really looking at um, a lot more opportunity than we can or really should advance just on our own. So we see that as uh, the partnering strategy is encompassing three key phases. This includes target discovery, clinically validated programs, and new indications or repurposing. From a target discovery point of view, we're looking at partnering with larger companies that are interested in novel target identification. And we have access to genetic data from nearly 14,000 diseases. So the playing field here is quite large uh, and exciting. We're also looking for under clinically validated programs. We anticipate advancing certain programs through a clinical proof of concept and then partnering those with larger companies with late stage and commercial expertise in that particular disease area. And in terms of new indications and repurposing our platform, one of the advantages is that we have also built, in addition to these target discovery tools, we built a lot of cheminformatics tools from scratch that use modern ML methods and really unusual sophisticated mathematical techniques to answer really um, deep and detailed questions about efficacy and potential reuse. So we can quickly identify possible additional indications and or repurposing opportunities for shelved drugs. And that would be the third leg of our current partnering strategy. And how is Nobias financed to date and how far will existing funding take you? So um, there's a little bit of history there. We were funded as a, um, we were funded by Domain Associates originally and Medical Excellence Capital. Domain is known for doing company formation and um, our chairman of the board, Brian Halleck, was a VC at Domain Associates. And so he was looking around at ways to take modern genetic databases, particularly some of the really large ones that are at a variety of institutions, and coupling those together with advanced uh, analytical tools, particularly including AI and ML techniques. So he contacted uh, our co-founder, Dr. Hauken Hauken-Arson, and uh, they decided to get together and, and take a couple of these programs that, that we have now, Lymphatic Anomalies Program and the 22Q Deletion Program, and uh, start with those as clinical trials and developing those molecules, and then bring on people as well who had expertise in AI and really development of AI-based systems. And of course, that's where I come in. And um, we spent the last couple of years building that stuff. And we were financed by this combination of Domain Associates, which uh, put in the initial capital and then uh, subsequent additional capital infusion by Medical Excellence Capital. And then um, we are now post phase two trial. We just re received a small bridge from our current investors that will sustain us 
for uh, another little while until we are able to bring in our next big round of financing. And we're, we're working on that fundraising right now. And it, it's been a tough environment for biotechs to raise money. It's been a, a, a bit more investor interest in companies with AI platforms, but what's the discussion with investors been like for you? Well, as you know, it's, it's a very tough time. Uh, many biotech companies um, were being held for something like a 70% discount on their actual cash assets. So the market is thinking, well, I guess these companies are going to destroy value. And that of course reflect cascades out to the, market beyond the public companies and into the VC space and so on. So we, of course, think we're going to add accretive value and, and very rapidly get to a point where we have uh, an amazing set of assets. But, you know, it's an uphill battle uh, for all companies that are in this space trying to raise capital right now. We do have a very supportive board. And as I mentioned, they've put additional money into the company um, and they're excited about what they're seeing come out of our platform, the data for our 22Q program and our multiple other uh, potential drugs that are in our pipeline. Uh, that money kicked off an effort to bring in our first large institutional round. Um, and we've spoken now to a lot of companies. Um, I think no one thinks, no one really believes it's going to be an easy task right now. Uh, you're going to have to speak to probably dozens, maybe even, you know, hundred or more VCs just to get that next um, term sheet. But our board has been phenomenal in helping us with that. They've amplified our investor outreach through uh, their connections and really helped us with a lot of introductions and, um, and ideas for how to develop what we're, we're trying to do. We know these VCs have got their hands full, keeping their current portfolios afloat, really looking at what's happening in the markets, uh, forecasting where things are going to go, particularly with um, sort of legislative acts and a huge amount of private companies coming to them asking for fresh capital. So we know all that. We are having good conversations and it seems like a lot of investors are focused on value creation and are really probing deeply to understand what our platform can deliver and differentiation in our clinical and preclinical programs. We're in early days still, but we're confident in the progress we've made and the way that we've de-risked our portfolio and our platform and the opportunities ahead that will en enable us to get this raise done. Neil Anala, CEO of No Bias Therapeutics. Neil, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks very much, Danny. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.